some forms of sport have uh, associated perhaps head injury with them. And um, some of you may have seen the film Concussion. So we have to be aware that um, not all exercise is always necessarily good for you. And we have to put uh, consideration about the risk of certain forms of exercise that take place in sports. And tonight, we're going to have a discussion about all that. So I think it's going to be very exciting. We can discuss some of the pros about sport and what it brings to you. And we'll also be discussing some of the problems associated with sport and how we might remediate those problems. So our first speaker um, is George, Dr. George Sudlidge, and he's a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Psychiatry. He holds his PhD from the Institute of Psychiatry and a master's degree from the University of Oxford. And George has previously collaborated with the Northampton Saints rugby team and also with the games company in London called Peak to investigate how you know, novel cognitive training could actually uh, help rugby players. So we'll be hearing about that. So that's a kind of very exciting new development. And our second speaker is Mike Cross. And Mike is founder and CEO of the Three Pillars Project. And it's a commu community interest company using rugby to reduce violence and reoffending among young offenders and young men in the criminal justice service. Mike served as an army officer for eight years, including two frontline tours <coughs> of Afghanistan. And he believes in the positive social impact that leadership and mentoring can have on young men through sport. So Mike is actually a level two rugby coach and he's played sports since his childhood. And Mike has a, a, a BA in politics from the University of Nottingham and a master's degree <coughs> in strategy and security from Exeter University. So Mike's going to tell us about some of the positive aspects such as the teamwork that we can see through rugby and other sports and um, also the benefits that sport might have. And then our next speaker is Dr. Michael Hart and he's a neurosurgery registrar at Addenbrooke's Hospital. He completed his undergraduate medical training in Edinburgh and he's just uh, recently finished his PhD in Cambridge, which focused on connectomics and the network effects of focal lesions. And Mike has a long-standing interest in sports-related concussions <coughs> and the underlying neurobiological mechanisms with the aim of improving safety and, and for those involved. And Mike Hart will be talking about some of the studies done with, in boxing and um, Cambridge uh, undergraduates here. And then our final speaker is Professor Peter Hutchinson, who is Professor of Neurosurgery, and he's also head of the uh, neurosurgery within the Department of Clinical Neurosciences. And he holds his honorary consultant neurosurgery post at Anbrooks Hospital. 
Professor Hutchinson is, is a very important man and very exciting because he also holds the title of Chief Medical Officer for the Formula One British Grand Prix. So you can imagine what he'll be talking about. And uh, his specialty is, of course, um, looking at brain injury and understanding the mechanisms of brain injury and how to repair the brain. So we have a fantastic panel, and I'm greatly looking forward to hearing the talks. Each speaker will speak for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll pull the chairs up here, and we'll take questions and discussion from the floor. So I think we're gonna have a great time. It's, we're gonna get a lot of knowledge, and I hope you enjoy it as well. So we'll have our first speaker, uh, Dr. George Sutherland. Thank you. My name is George, and I am a researcher with Professor Sahakian. It's fantastic to see so many people here tonight. Thank you all for coming. I'm going to talk tonight about an innovative strategy that we use to enhance memory function in professional rugby players in response to the high incidence of concussions reported in this sport. So as you'll be aware, the benefits of sports are vast and positively impact on both physical and mental health. People who play sport experience reduced stress, increased social interaction, more positive mood, and better sleep. They also experience better cognition, and if you think in terms of rugby players, this makes a lot of sense because many aspects are needed for successful gameplay. Things like concentration, uh, attentional shifting, memorizing plays, facial navigation, visual search, and cognitive flexibility. However, and perhaps not surprisingly, head injuries have attracted quite a lot of attention in recent years, with contact and collision being the biggest risk factors for head injury. Head injuries affect players of all levels, but are most common in children and adolescent athletes. And this is obviously a problem, as we know that the brain continues to develop up until about the age of 25. And according to the NCAA, which is the American National Collegiate Athletic Association, the sports with the highest risk of contact and collision, as you might guess, are rugby, American football, ice and field hockey, football, boxing, wrestling, lacrosse, skiing, and pole vault. And I was a bit surprised by the last one, but I suppose if you're sort of jumping over a bar, you, you do run the risk of landing sort of improperly on your head. And among those with the least contact and collision are bowling, swimming, running, and rowing. So a concussion is defined as a disturbance to the brain in which it moves rapidly inside the skull following an external trauma, such as a blow, jolt, or bump to the head, or even the neck or body. So even if your neck, even if your head isn't struck, you get in the chest, for example, and your neck snaps back, you would still have that rapid movement. And as you can see from the picture, the brain is actually sort of slamming against the inside of the skull. Only 10% of concussed individuals will lose consciousness, and this is quite important because many people think that losing consciousness is a key indicator to diagnose concussion, but that's not actually the case. Other signs include things like dizziness, imbalance, confusion, sensitivity to light, slurred speech, blurred vision, and headache. 
And I can say from my own experience, having been concussed once, it was a little bit sort of um, of a paradox because in A and E, the doctors had said it's really important not to go to sleep. But I really remember the sensitivity to light being really unbearable, and all I wanted to do was sort of close my eyes. But uh, but I was sort of told not to. And these symptoms can be immediate, or they can develop over time. And inside the brain, concussion is actually leading to brain swelling, as well as increased intracranial pressure. And in more extreme cases, it can lead to long-term health consequences, including early retirement of athletes. So I think one of the most important take-home messages from today is that a concussion is, in fact, a mild traumatic brain injury. It's not a badge of honor for playing really well and playing really hard, and it's not something that should be ignored. And according to the Sports Concussion Institute, 5 to 10% of athletes will experience a concussion in any given sports season. And in American football, a player will receive an estimate of 900 to 1,500 blows to the head during any given season, which is really quite a lot. And if you think in terms of impacts, the impact speed of a professional boxer's punch can be up to 20 miles per hour. The impact speed of a football player, of an American football player tackling a stationary player is up to 25 miles per hour. And the impact speed of a football being headed by another player can actually be up to 70 miles per hour. So these authors use what we call a meta-analysis, and this is a statistical technique that pulls together data from many studies to try to look for over overall patterns or any effects. This was done in 2014, and it included 37 studies published up until May 2014. And it was found that there were 4.73 concussions for every 1,000 match hours. In contrast to practice, only 0.07 concussions were reported per every 1,000 practice hours. And this is obviously due to the greater pressure to perform during the actual game than in practice. And just to note, this is for 15 aside. And interestingly, forwards are at a greater risk of injury. The ball carrier is at a greater risk of concussion than the tacklers. And concussion rates are disproportionately high for foul play. And these authors invite the question if we can therefore reduce concussions by modifying player behavior by imposing more sanctions on foul play. So as you can see, this topic has attracted quite a lot of attention in the press, particularly in the last few years. There was at least two high-profile cases in which <laughs> An athlete was seen motionless on the ground, seemingly unconscious after a collision, who was allowed to return to gameplay after passing the head injury assessment. However, non-compliance was suggested and investigated, and this led to a review of protocols of what happens when a rugby player um, is suspected of having a concussion. And we now have something that are called the Recognize and Remove Guidelines, <coughs> which includes six R's. So firstly, recognizing the symptoms, removing the player, referral to a healthcare professional, rest, which means no exercise, recover until symptom-free, and return to play. And even though this is really great in terms of our brain health, you can see how a lot of athletes might not want to do this, particularly if it's leading up to a really important game or, or during a game that they have to train you know, quite, a lot, quite a lot of time for. So I, as I mentioned earlier, concussions are, in fact, a mild traumatic brain injury, and these account for 75% of all head injuries. And evidence of changes in neural circuitry in the hippocampus 
which is the part of the brain for memory, have been evidenced. However, cognitive dysfunction, including problems with memory, often persist in minimal and mild traumatic brain injury, even in the absence of major imaging evidence. So this means you can still have a concussion, and you can still have cognitive problems, such as memory, even if your brain scan is appearing to be normal. And in order to modulate this or correct this, brain stimulation techniques have been used, and these include TMS and TDCS, and these actually apply electromagnetic fields or electrical current to the surface of the skull. However, even less invasive is a, is a technique called cognitive training, and this involves computerized training techniques that aim to enhance a specific cognitive function, such as attention or memory, through repeated practice. And much like in sport, the more you do something or the more you use something, the better you will be at it. And Barbara has coined the term use it or lose it, which definitely applies here. So what we did, so we teamed up with Peak, which is an award-winning London-based game company and the Northampton Saints, to target memory in their rugby players using a computer game that was both cost-effective, fun, and could be played on their mobile phones. Our game was provided to the Northampton Saints, who agreed to play the game as much as they could for a period of four weeks. The game was designed to help strengthen the neural network that underlies memory. And we tested memory before and after gameplay. So this is a more advanced version of the game that they played. Our game was based on neuroimaging and neuropsychological data showing impaired memory function in the hippocampus, in the brain, in many patient groups with memory deficits, such as patients with schizophrenia, as well as patients with mild cognitive impairment, which is often the first stage to Alzheimer's disease. And we wanted the game to be fun and enjoyable, so we adopted a Lord of the Rings, sort of Harry Potter theme, because we felt that we had, we had run a few focus groups, and we found that most people liked this sort of concept. <clears throat> so I'm hopefully now going to play you a little sneak peek of the game.
likes to see many people smiling during that. So before and after the rugby players played this game, we measured what's called episodic memory. And episodic memory is the kind of memory that we use to try to remember um, different objects, for example, if where, you, where you might have put your keys or where you might have uh, parked your car in a multi-story car park. In order to test memory, we use the CANTAP PAL test, and PAL stands for Paired Associates Learning. And this test was co-invented by Professor Sahakian. During this test, participants are asked to try to remember the locations of patterns presented in boxes on the screen. And the amount of information that uh, people are asked to remember starts with three, then can go up to six, eight, 10, and 12 pattern stages, obviously increasing the level of difficulty. This test is highly sensitive to memory impairment and has been in use in research for over 30 years. So what we found, so, um, firstly, um, if we were going to do sort of like an actual proper study, we would have sort of controlled for the amount of time that the people played to make sure everybody did more or less the same. But in this case, just being a bit preliminary, we just said, here's the game, do it as long as you can, and then we just sort of saw what happened. And we can see here on the CANTAB PAL test, those that played the longest, so for more than sort of three hours, five hours, did the best in terms of making the least number of errors on our memory test. And you can see those chaps that only played for two minutes and seven minutes did rather poorly by making quite a lot of mistakes. Furthermore, those that played longer did better in terms of the number of trials they needed. So they, need, they needed less attempts to try to remember the different amounts of information on the screen, depending on how long they played. And finally, those that played longer had a better memory score. And the first trial memory score is the number of patterns correctly located after the first trial sums across the same period. <coughs> this is quite exciting and, and, and uh, quite encouraging. Um, so sort of suggests that those that played our memory game longer did better on the memory test um, and reported pretty much liking and sort of would be happy to continue playing the game if offered to them. So what is next? Unfortunately, a lot of work needs to be done still. These headlines were actually just about three days ago. Um, so this is still continues to be a problem um, in rugby. And I would say in conclusion, my sort of take home message would be that more research and education is needed to protect and improve player welfare. And in terms of recent initiatives, there are a few. The first is that maybe protective headgear um, new protective headgear could be more effective. At the moment, new developments are being led out of Cardiff University. There's also talk of a concussion eye test, and this is meant to measure the pupil's response to light. It's meant to be more objective, so it doesn't rely on any self-report from the players. Thirdly, there are very good rapid visual screening tools. The CANTAB Mobile is a touchscreen device that is designed to identify clinically relevant memory impairment in under 10 minutes. Next, Australia just implemented the blue card system, which actually empowers referees to issue blue cards to players that are suspected of concussions who then have to go into rehabilitation and can't return for a minimum of 12 days. And lastly, new technologies. One of the things that we really focus on in our lab is the way in which we can use new technology to positively impact on mental health. And one of the key things we try to really focus on is reducing any negative stigma associated with anybody who has a mental health problem. 
and we try to come up with new ways using technology to provide cognitive benefits so that all members of society can have good well-being throughout the life course. And the next thing that we're doing in conjunction with the Brain Injury Healthcare Technology Cooperative is we're working on a new game which is designed to hopefully improve attention and concentration. And we hope to use these, this in patients that have a traumatic brain injury. And this involves just a little, a little snippet, um, trying to remember sequences of numbers. So for example, um, I'm gonna show you some numbers. If, if you see a five, an eight, and a three, you would press the button. Um, and this would obviously be embedded within a game to try to make it more fun and enjoyable. So here, just have a go. on Wednesday, so you'll have to excuse me, kind of going to talk for, from the heart and just about um, what we're involved with, working in prison with young people using rugby uh, in a criminal justice system. Um, so my background, as Barbara said, um, uh, I was an army officer for eight years, I played rugby uh, all my life. Um, I deeply believe in the power of, of rugby and contact sports to, to bring young people on, give, give them development in, in ways that... Um, we can't fully fathom um, until we fully develop our understanding of the brain. Um, so I founded Three Pillars Project when I left the army about a year ago. Three Pillars Project works in the criminal justice system. We use really strong, positive role models and we uh, coach rugby. Uh, we coach rugby with young men in prison. Um, why rugby? Uh, why not football? Why not rowing or running or triathlon? Um, I think there is something deeply strong about using rugby to engage young men. Um, George has talked about some of the disadvantages of contact sport. I think um, they are there, we know they exist, and I think it's really important the work of neuroscientists and neurologists to uh, really get to the bottom of uh, how we mitigate risk, um, how we uh, fully understand uh, what's going on on the pitch. But Importantly, how we make the game safer in a constructive, in a constructive manner. Uh, but what are the advantages? The advantages of rugby are discipline, um, teamwork, and cohesion. But particularly for our work in the criminal justice system, what we find is uh, risk appetite. Young people under 25 have a huge risk appetite, which is quite often not satisfied by um, some of the other sports that I mentioned. Um, Particularly the young men we find in the criminal justice system have um, fairly, uh, a fairly interesting, colourful past um, and a sport like rugby has uh, real credence or boxing has real credence uh, with them. I think also uh, within the criminal justice system, both rugby and boxing are seen as very masculine sports and with, within um, criminal justice, masculinity is obviously quite a significant concept. Being in prison, you are um, judged and assessed visually by how you look physically, how you conduct yourself. 
Um, it's, it's how you keep yourself safe in prison, by being a physical presence. Um, so by engaging young men with contact sports like rugby and boxing, we find that uh, the masculinity of those sports is very powerful for, for engaging and gaining buy-in to and produce long-term sustainable change. Um, some of the work we've been trying to do, we've been doing with uh, Barbara involves uh, CANTAB <coughs> cognition. We use uh, the CANTAB test to measure impulsivity at the start and the end of our courses over a six-week <coughs> course. Uh, we're still running with those those uh, tests at the moment, but I think um, from uh, just uh, what I what I visually experienced and what I see in the improvement in behaviour of young people from both role modelling but playing sport in a very uh, controlled um, environment is really positive, even over a short amount of time. Uh, rugby really emphasises a particular stop, go, no, go concept. Um, men are build themselves up to a really quite physical point where they're being quite aggressive, and all of a sudden there is a sense of control implemented by the referee or the rules within the game. This is a really positive concept. Um, but again, I think, as George mentioned, it's the, it really goes back to us mitigating the risks of rugby. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, there's an example from Wednesday that applies for me personally for boxing. I saw um, a young young man in a reception I was in on Wednesday um, before the <coughs> talk about the power of boxing to engage in. And he said, he was actually a young British probably 19, 20 year old British Muslim man, and he had spoken about, he said, his words were, um, I want to win medals rather than hang around on street corners. And he had found that boxing was the way that he could engage. He, he himself could find his concept of masculinity by engaging with boxing and fighting and finding a real sense of pride through boxing. Um, and there he was talking about his experience now fighting for GB boxing team. I thought, for me, that was a really powerful um, experience that I had on, on Wednesday in Westminster. Um, but that goes back to, so we go back to the mitigation slightly. I think um, we have to mitigate the risks of rugby. Um, I don't work in high-level sports, and I think George is far more qualified to talk about um, some of the things going on there, but uh, certainly in the youth, in youth and lower-level coaching, we have to advocate proper coaching, um, moderate player behaviour and also uh, coaches pushing, pushing young people to, to play through concussion. And that's about uh, moderating our group attitudes towards um, when it's okay to say, I'm not, not good to, to go on anymore. Um, and that's again, really positive side of uh, neuroscience and a lot of work's being done at the moment. I think there's this real contrast between what happened with American football um, kind of in the last decade and what's been happening with rugby recently uh, American football and the NFL effectively suppressed all known uh, evidence about concussion. They knew it was going on with their players. It's such a huge financial industry that they wanted to suppress that, that evidence. They didn't properly mitigate what was going on. However, I think with rugby, we've now got a really constructive, positive debate that um, will hopefully see the sport prosper, but most importantly, will um, reduce incidents of concussion and long-term mental health issues. Okay, so finally, in conclusion, uh, just want to, uh, I would just reiterate what we experience in, in prisons is that concept of risk appetite. Uh, young men, typically um, under 25, have a huge risk appetite. 
they want to be engaged in dangerous activity. Um, it's not all everyone within society, but there are cohorts that want to be engaged in dangerous activity. Um, rugby and boxing, to an extent, provide this in a very controlled environment. I think the contrast of that, if you don't offer proper uh, controlled physical engagement, is it manifests in other forms of violence, which are completely under uncontrolled. There's a huge uh, violence problem in, amongst teenagers in London at the moment. Um, a number of young people are stabbed and killed every year. Um, and I think that if they're involved in more physical contact that's structured and controlled sports, um, they would be uh, in a far better place and a lot more channeled um, in a far more positive place. Um, so just to round off on the three things, um, I think rugby and boxing particularly provide fantastic levels of discipline, provide fantastic social benefits and cohesion, and finally they satisfy risk appetite. Thank you. controversial subjects in sport, and that is the safety of boxing. Certainly in terms of polarising opinion, there isn't really anything to compare, except perhaps the current American president. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to briefly uh, revisit the uh, cases for and against boxing, and then we're going to try and see how science can help us uh, get closer to the answer. And we'll also discuss the study that we've produced here in Cambridge that we feel has contributed to the field. So moving on, first of all, the case against. It's certainly true that boxing has numerous very vocal detractors, including our own British Medical Association and many members of the free press who seem to be very much against it on the front pages, but in these same papers very much passionately cover it on the back pages. And the arguments uh, against can be split into various themes. First of all, many of the detractors view boxing as simply barbaric. There's no role in a civilised modern society, similar to jousting or pugilism. And they also make a point that the key aim of boxing is to focus on injury. And this is uh, in distinction to many other violent sports, such as ice hockey or American football, where the same violence seems to be deflected onto some other inanimate object instead of somebody's head, so a football or a puck. <coughs> they also say that boxing tends to glamorise violence as many celebrities, lots of money, it appears very attractive sport, and this is sending out the wrong message to the youth that violence isn't the answer. And finally, there are medical reasons against boxing as well. There are still, sadly, some acute injuries that do occur, and some chronic injuries that may be occurring as well. So what about the case for? Well, there are many humorous uh, and uh, vocal and passionate supporters of boxing, and first of all, they say boxing is fun. Even our Duchess of Cambridge here enjoys throwing a few punches. <laughs> certain occasions, uh, and it's got a certain role in fitness and uh, improving self-esteem that uh, even the public uh, can appreciate rather than just the professionals. And regardless of how much it's cliche, one might find that it provides a route out of poverty, uh, certainly for some. There are numerous anecdotes such as Sugar Ray Leonard here pointing at how it's providing a, a route out of some very desperate situations. And there are also <coughs> truly excellent role models uh, in boxing as well. Not everyone, but certainly Nicola Adams here, I've got to say, is richer for having people like her uh, in the media. 
providing very positive role models in many levels for uh, young and old people. Uh, and people in favour of boxing also point out that aim isn't just violence. It's not about punching the nose into the brain, as Mike Tyson uh, rather inelegantly put it. The aim now is more for skill and discipline and uh, technique and speed. And we'll see this uh, later on when we talk about particularly amateur boxing. And finally, the modern sport of boxing that we talk about now is very different from the sport of boxing of the past. There have been numerous changes to the rule. It's really transformed, and we need to be uh, very careful when we're talking about previous studies on this. So, we've heard arguments for and against boxing. What is the truth? Well, the truth is complex. So first of all, as I mentioned, these rules have changed a lot of the years, so a lot of previous studies we've talked about are really talking about a very different population. Particularly, a study published 20, 30 years ago is going to be including boxers who were boxing 60 years ago, for example, beginning of their career. So we're talking about boxers at the time of World War II. So what we can do in medicine uh, or in science is we can perform a review of the literature and put it all together in a, a meta-analysis, systematic review. This is what Mike Lucemore and colleagues did here in a high-profile publication back in 2007. And they meticulously went through the literature and found very little. And what they did find was very poor quality. So this doesn't really help us. All these arguments against boxing aren't really backed up by the published literature. So now we can delve into the murky world of statistics to try and help us. And here it is interesting because you see in terms of deaths and even concussions as well, boxing doesn't score very highly at all. Can everyone hear me okay? There are many sports that could have far higher injury rate than boxing, and indeed even the Royal Society for Prevention of Accidents ranks at least 74 sports higher than boxing itself. So now what do we do? We've got arguments for and against and a rather murky literature. Well, we can try and run a study ourselves, which is what we did. So first of all, we asked the question, is boxing safe or can we find any signs of injury? And specifically, what we're talking about is amateur boxing, which is quite a different sport from the slugfest of old, where it's very much focused on speed, technique, and skill. And here we can see Amber Khan boxing 10 years ago, actually back when headgears, uh, headguards were uh, introduced, not what we do now. So how did we run this sort of study? Well, we were in a unique situation <coughs> in Cambridge. We had access to one of the oldest, most prestigious amateur boxing clubs in the world. And the unique thing about this club is we could recruit participants prior to them even having trained or sparred boxing, let alone having a fight, so purely virgin brain, and very fit and healthy young people as well. The average IQ was 120, so fitting with the University of Cambridge. And we recruited these students uh, each year at the beginning of the Michaelmas term, so around about in October, when they were starting up and signing up to all the clubs in Fresher Square. We then followed these uh, participants up into the Blues match, which uh, happened in Lent term, roughly four months later, and we uh, assessed them again after their fight, so within 24 hours. And then the final assessment, the third assessment, was a year later, so we had almost 18 months of follow-up in this cohort. And what did we use for assessment? Well, we really uh, threw the kitchen sink at them. We used very advanced, state-of-the-art, non-invasive uh, assessments in terms of neuropsychology assessment and also neuroimaging. So it's worth recapping what we can cover with neuroimaging these days. First of all, with an MRI scan, what we're talking about here. Excuse me. We can measure the brain's surface, and we can look at the surface area and the curvature and features of its topology. We can also measure the thickness of the cortex. We know this is a very sensitive measure uh, for all sorts of uh, cognitive dis uh, 
And we can also measure the white matter as well. So the gray matter is looking at the function of the neurons, and the white matter is looking at the connection between them as well. So lots of uh, opportunities uh, for assessing injury. And so what did we find? Well, first of all, we found that the student community was very engaged with the study. There was no problem recruiting majority of uh, participants each year. But it was quite a different thing trying to keep hold of them. As you can imagine, with the fluid student population, many moved on, stopped boxing, went into other things, or weren't, simply weren't available for follow-up. So we had a high attrition rate. Only 10 out of our 30 made it through the full 18 months. And out of those 10, there were two rather interesting clinical events. First of all, one patient had a subdural hematomas. This is a bleed in the surface of the brain, uh, giving the participant headaches that required a surgical operation. Still neurosurgery, but minor neurosurgery. They then went on to make a good recovery. And another participant developed seizures. Now, seizures do happen at the rate that the uh, participant stopped boxing and then had the traumatic convulsions. But in terms of the neuroimaging and neuropsychology assessments, there were no positive findings whatsoever. They appeared just flat blank, didn't show any changes throughout their 18 months of assessment. So how do we interpret this? Well, there's a discord in our findings. It's complicated. On the one hand, we have rather significant <coughs> clinical events, but on the other hand, we didn't detect anything with our state-of-the-art uh, assessment protocol. And this protocol has proven itself to be sensitive uh, in numerous studies or even minor brain injuries uh, in other situations. So the, the techniques themselves are inherently sensitive and well-validated. But in this cohort, they didn't produce anything. And we learned a lot from this study. So this was a unique study design. Nobody had tried something like this, both in terms of a prospective study, so following people up over time, doing multiple assessments, doing this complex multi-modality assessment with neuroimaging, clinical assessment, neuropsychology findings, and also even recruiting a student population, which hadn't been done before. And we learned a lot. So it's important to recruit them, and it's very important to try and keep them recruited. And this is difficult. So I think if we were to do this again, we'd probably bring the assessments together closely in time to prevent people drifting off and maybe have more assessments in this time frame. The measures themselves were state-of-the-art at the time we did the study, but uh, neuroimaging things and neuropsychology things move on all the time. We've now recently developed one of the state-of-the-art scanners in the whole country or world in Cambridge, uh, and this may offer us increased sensitivity to detecting subtle or minor signs of brain injury. I find it's very important to have a control group if we're looking at any sort of group differences. So, for example, a non-contact sport such as rowing or running would be an excellent example here. But very much uh, the field is moving on to individuals rather than group differences. So there we're looking at new methods to try and predict an individual's risk, both in the short term and in the long term. So in conclusion, is boxing safe or isn't it? Well, I hope you've heard that it's a complex question. <coughs> certainly arguments for and against, but the truth is rather more murky. And as uh, we suspected, the answer wasn't going to come clear with just one study. Uh, there's divergent findings, which kind of fits with what we know uh, from a clinical point of view. Most boxers seem to be okay. We're not inundated with uh, referrals of people having an injury from one round of sparring, but there are repeat injuries. No doubt these injuries do exist. So there appears to be a real divergence in the population. And in terms of moving forward, well, our study design is quite unique, and I think this could serve as a, a role model for other studies in the future of how we can non-invasively follow up participants in a variety of uh, contact and non-contact sports as well. Very much focusing on the individuals and attention to safety. Uh, so finally, there was this great quote from Joe Frazier, saying, boxing is the only sport you can get your brain shoot 
your money too, and your name in the Undertaker booth. I'm not sure you can do much about getting your money taken, but hopefully you can do something about improving the safety of the sport and very much focusing on that, and hopefully people go out to the Undertaker's booth as well. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here.
So what Dave is a medical student, so he's going to provide seamless high quality care for the incident site <coughs> through to the medical facility, the medical center, the surgical surgeon, and delivery to the designated destination. So how do we how do we go about that? Well, as Christine and I both from Solway next to our intrepid retailer that purchased it, that's part of the, the circuit and the local control building is this big set of screens so we can see exactly what's happening throughout the whole of the circuit and we have uh, doctors pretty much at every corner and we have five medical cycles one of which attracts five doctors and that's going on from the early grid we get the, the lighting connected with a, a, a rolling uh, LED light there that's all our primary energy sensors for that the main access desk is just in the car we get two or five and then Robert Stone is Head injury is the commonest cause of death 
under the age of 40 in this country, and it's a major cause of disability in survivors. And it's a severe-looking patient. mutation. This is a, a rare accident. Patient's going from the scene, emergency department, maybe the operating theatre, intensive care, rehabilitation, reintegration into the community. And we treat uh, many patients with severe brain injury in Cambridge. The priorities, and this is what we're good at in motorsport, is making sure that the patient has oxygen, that they wear a mask, that their airway is open, and that we maintain their blood pressure so we give them the ability to improve. And what's unique about motorsport is that we can study head injury with very rapid resuscitation because people are getting medical intervention very quickly, which sadly is not always the case in, in civilian road traffic accidents where, where medical intervention can, can be delayed. <coughs> Just <coughs> going away from severe injury into this concept of concussion, which is, George said, a, a mild traumatic brain injury. It is induced by trauma, results in a blow to the head. It is usually a transient, short-lived insult that disturbs the brain function and affects many complex processes that we don't uh, clearly understand. So it's important to recognize that you can be concussed without losing consciousness, and you can be concussed without any period of loss of memory. So that's memory before the impact and also memory after. So you can get a significant brain injury uh, without being unconscious. And we used to think that concussion was caused purely by a blow to the head. That is often the case, but as, as George said, it can also be caused by the head moving on the neck. So no direct impact, but if the body stops suddenly and the head continues to move, that can cause concussion. And what we've now learned is it's not so much the backwards and forwards movements, it's the fact that the head rotates. So it's this rotation movement <coughs> affecting the brain stem between the brain and the spinal cord that seems to be quite important in, in actually causing a, a concussion. So how do you diagnose it? You take a history, so you ask the patient some questions, you examine the patient, and then there's a number of tests. This is called the SCAT-free test. This is a sporting test with a number of uh, different components to try and assess whether the, 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 the patient is concussed. And what do you do? Well, this is often difficult, removing testes from the action, so this can be difficult decision-making in rugby. Often in motor racing, it's not. They have an accident, the car's crashed, and they're not going to get back in there immediately. But in, in Formula One in particular, we have decision to return if the driver fit to go back the next day. Monitor them, and then for certain concussions, of course, you would need to, to refer to an emergency department. So transient loss of consciousness, not obligatory. People with confusion or disorientation, they, they, they just don't feel right. Maybe a bit of memory loss, headache, dizziness, sickness, visual disturbance. And you know, most concussions, although they're nasty at the time, they get better. 80% of them are resolving within a week or so. And the treatment, if you get one, is to rest. If you sprain your ankle, you rest it. If you, in effect, sprain it and do your brain with a concussion, you need to rest it. So in essence, the management requires early recognition, rest until the brain recovers, and then you need to begin to increase both your cognitive activity, how you think, your thought processes, executive function, and also your physical activity. And we tend to recommend that patients whose symptoms last for more than three to four weeks should be referred to more specialist services for clinical assessment. That may involve a brain scan, and it may involve a neuropsychology assessment. 
So most people get better quickly, but some people can have ongoing problems following concussion. That's called the post-concussion syndrome. That can last weeks, very occasionally months, but there's things that we can try and do to help it. And there's good advice out there, including the Brain Injury Association Headway and Leicester Headway website. They, they, they can provide very helpful practical advice. <coughs> So what about coming back, coming back to rugby, coming back to motorsports? So some of the sports now have these formalised rules, but at the end of the day, we need a personalised approach is needed based on the player, level of performance and the rules and perhaps benefit of the sport. And I see quite a few concussed rugby players go to the university. The question is, when do they go back? And you need to be sensible. You know, is this impacting on their studies? Are they an amateur rugby player? Could they take a prolonged period of time out? Are they professional and they need to get back more quickly? A sensible, tailored approach to individual players. If you go back and you get tiredness or headache, then you need to back off again, have a period of rest, reduce your activity till the, till the symptoms settle. But what's really important is that players, coaches, family members need to know that important symptoms can be present even when the, even when the patient feels normal. So this is what we call the graduated return to play. So this is one protocol where you would increase your activity to no activity, light exercise, sport specific exercise, non-contact training, full contact practice and then return to play. And you would do that over a number of days, hopefully progressing all the way back to normal game play. If it's not right, you may have to stop at a stage or, or even go back at a stage. So uh, a couple of years ago now, we put together the concussion guidelines for the education sector. So that was a, a collaboration. A number of individuals uh, recognize, remove, recover, and return. That's the, the four R's. This is available uh, off the web. It gives quite helpful guidance in terms of how you diagnose, how you treat patients, and how you get them back to play. It's very important. And that was endorsed, encouragingly, by a a number of sporting organisations as well as professional medical organisations, particularly the, the Rugby Union, Cricket Board, DFA, Rugby League, Hockey uh, and, and Sporting League. So I think that's quite a helpful document for people to worry, but you know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is, is to get people back to their normal activity uh, as soon as possible. And also, if you're interested, we put this editorial together in the British Medical Journal about concussion in sport. Be aware of the risks. Once you recover, get better and get back to your normal activity. Really important to get back into playing sport when you can. I'd, I'd just like to acknowledge my colleagues at Silverstone, particularly Dr. Ian Roberts, the presenter CMA, for, for who goes to all the Grand Prix sits in that house and traders at the back of the group. And the uh, Silverstone Association. And again, thanks to Barbara for organising this. I think it's time for a discussion now.
Great, so we'll start back there. Um, my question really is about post exports and the enjoyment of them versus money. Um, we talked about sports, um, which gave various headings, but it's quite a lot of them are to do with the fact they're professional sports. I mean, one of the um, surprise sports here is motor racing. Um, that's a money machine which seems to work in a different way. But a lot of people these days say they don't want to watch it because they're not interested anymore. But actually, that means that people don't crash their motors anymore because basically they're being harmed with safety of the sport. So we talked a lot about repairing um, people's problems, um, but I don't hear much about the idea of preventing those problems. Like, for example, um, amateur boxing. Um, yes, we're hippies, I think. And somebody said something about that. It's not like that anymore. Well, I didn't say it because he managed to get chucked at. Um, you could say that professional boxing, because we're hippies, why not? Well, perhaps people actually like to see the splatter of blood, especially in sport on train. Um, I kind of feel that basically a lot of head injuries are caused by sports which are um, bloodthirsty in the sense that they're professional sports, not, um, what should we say, uh, participator sports, but sports, sports which have a, an audience who pay money. So, um, is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, so just, um, I'll pick up on one point about that, uh, about the head guards in uh, amateur boxing. They were um, started with last year before the Olympics because they found that the head injury rate or the concussion rate was higher with head guards than without. That's it is, and it kind of fits with what we were deciphering the commentary as well. So there's um, a few different perspectives on this. One is that uh, perhaps people uh, take more risks when they know they have a head guard. So cyclists who wear helmets are perhaps more risky and drivers pass them safer. Uh, and there's also a question of momentum as well. So Professor Hutchinson mentioned it's a rotational force as well. So having more weight on your head, even though these head guards are light, was maybe enough to uh, increase the rotational forces through momentum. So they took that decision to uh, take away head guards. So most amateur boxing matches now won't have them, but females they do because uh, there wasn't enough evidence out there. But the limitation to my opinion to improving safety is trying to understand the biological mechanisms. We need some biological signature, biomarker that will help us try and pinpoint what are the features, what's actually happening. And then we can try and look at interventions to try and reduce this. And at the moment we're limited to an extent in that we need uh, follow-up clinical evidence, uh, anecdotes from watching hyper uh, acute injuries that do happen. But for example in our study there was nothing apparent that we could try and reduce. Thank you. So I, th I think that's um, uh, a very interesting point, that we do need more studies in this area. But also, um, I think it was raised the um, possibility by, um, I think uh, you actually raised it, Michael, about the possibility of getting out of poverty through boxing. And I think Mike Cross mentioned the fact that some people like quite risky physically engaging activities and that it's perhaps better to train them to have self-control in that context than to leave them um, trying to figure out what to do about this extra energy and impulsivity that they have. Um, okay, yes. Most sports were codified in the 19th century when people weren't quite as fit as they are in the 21st century. 
occurs to me that what you're not about to get is alter, this spring rather. After 60 minutes, five or six or seven players come on who are bigger and fitter and stronger than the 60 people who are already on the field. Is there a real possibility that more injuries will happen because people are getting fitter and fitter? Um, so it, obviously the speed of the game and sports science has a massive impact on professionalism. Obviously guys are training full time, they'll be training uh, 10 to 20 hours a week, spending a lot of time in the gym, so they're bigger and faster. I think, um, I, mean, I, would, I would never want to be brought onto a rugby pitch at 60 minutes because that first 10 minutes is the most painful 10 minutes of your life. You're catching up with the rest of the game. So just because someone's fresh doesn't mean that they're automatically in the games straight away. Um, the rest of the team will probably be in a second wind. Um, but I do think, I think your point about codifying and, and when sports were um, invented is, is a really interesting one. You're right. Um, and I think rugby union has been very good at evolving the sport and really limiting the risk factor. So now guys are jumping incredibly high, two metres up in the air, but actually they've really reduced the risk of being taken out in the air. Uh, scrums, you know, it used to be a complete black, they called it a black art. Um, scrums incredibly used to be an incredibly dangerous place, but actually they've managed to really control range of risk. And I think it really goes back to what George was saying about mitigating risk and um, just tweaking uh, sanctions on the pitch and tweaking the rules. And I think at rugby has done incredibly well uh, with that. We had a question down here. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you went back to those university boxes in 40 years' time, have you had the opportunity? You might expect to find some changes then. Potentially. I know, I know you've tested everything, it's but there uh, may be other things, information that fills up. But it is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, so it's possible that... It's about the dose, though, isn't it? And I think you know, well-regulated university boxing... In fact, I think some of them actually got better in their neuropsychology testing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it may be that the people who are attracted towards it are, are bright, motivated people. And, uh, yes. you know, I think what my, the study might show that it appeared safe on, the, on those tests, although there were a couple of clinical issues that he talked about. I, I think that is the point. There are different samples. And say, the ones who took a route out of poverty who probably had poor nutrition or prenatal care and so forth in the first place. I kind of lead on from the. Sure. It's, it's maybe slightly sanguine, but um, I think to a point, we kind of we need to live our lives for today. And if you enjoy doing something, you need to do it. And if the risk of that is developing Alzheimer's in 40 years, obviously it's not something I would want to develop. But eventually, all of our lives will come to an end at some point, and we do need to embrace enjoyment and live our lives. We, we shouldn't seek to sterilize everything that is was given down to us by our forebears. It wasn't that long ago that we were living in caves and dragging, dragging our knuckles. So I don't think uh, we should fully sterilise our lives. I think um, a little bit of risk is, is healthy. I, I agree. So when we see people in the clinic after a brain injury and they're better, it's very important to say that you're better and get on with your life. You've got to get back, particularly young people, get back to your, to your normal activities. You've got to live your life. So I just want to pick up on the comment that um, uh, Hutch made, and, and that's really referring to the boxing uh, study, because we did find a very interesting finding that attention and concentration improved in the boxes, and you can just imagine if you're dodging 
punches and you're learning how to do that, that your attentional function also gets much better because you're tracking and keeping a lookout for where these things are coming from. So I did find that very interesting uh, that certainly early on that the attention and concentration seems to improve. Well, lots of questions. We'll, we'll take one here and then one here. Um, my question is about the strong views about this and I strongly believe in cycle helmets and if you look at the injury that you can get to the brain on falling off your bicycle a helmet won't stop very high speed collision where there is rotation and movement of the brain within the skull it's not designed to stop that but what it will stop is the direct trauma to the scalp and to the skull and the brain underlying that point of the impact you know, and I've seen many helmets that are shattered and yet the patient's scalp is pristine, they don't have a fracture. And, and often some of the nasty injuries, it's not a high speed one because people when fall, low velocity and hit the head on the pavement. So I, I, I really strongly believe in, uh, in cycle helmets to stop that mechanism of injury. I would say that.
more familiar with that it's used in, it's, it's most successfully used in depression, and it, it has been found to alleviate certain depression and increase positive mood. Um, in terms of athletes, I'm not actually sure. Um, there's been much done specifically in rugby players, for example. Um, I don't know. And you like, um, I know that it is used um, for, it, it has been used effectively in model traumatic brain injury. Um, okay, we've got a question back there. the 
concentrate in a very hidden region. So, for example, with sports like boxing and rugby and that, it's pretty obvious, really, that you are opening yourself to injury. And it's a self-assessment to, do I enjoy this sport? Am I getting enough out of it based, uh, you know, compared to the, the possibility of injury that we have to a certain degree? I know it can be improved, but you should be aware we're very much into motor racing, uh, motor bike racing, and you've got to be aware that there is a, always a certain risk to that, however much. But like with the cycle helmets and that, you know, I remember when I was younger and people first started, you know, said, there was a stigma about me not wearing that, you know, that kind of thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Better education to sort of where you need safety and not. But the elite cyclists wear them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So yeah. maybe you could put that down the other way.
think, you know, if you look at the Formula One cars and open copy racing cars, how you're exposed compared to, to road cars with a lot of other safety devices around them with, with airbags, other protection, you know, there's no doubt that I think wearing a helmet does impede your vision and your ability to turn your neck, which is not such an issue in motor racing because they're not so conscious of that. So, you know, I think <coughs> we need to be sensible and to put somebody in a helmet in a road car in terms of restricting their vision, turning their neck is, is, is not sensible. Couldn't the helmets be designed to get better <coughs> vision and so on? They, they could, but, you know, it, it still does, I, I don't think your neck movement is as free with a helmet on as it is without. Okay, we'll have the next question. Um, thank you for your speeches, they're all really interesting, but um, <coughs> I did notice that in the sports you talk about, you're very, um, very much in the pictures of men, not women. <laughs> and Same, 
some of those same uh, issues as far as a, uh, as well as a high um, uh, prevalence of mental health uh, challenges that might be uh, benefit similarly benefited. Yes. Um, so as an organization, we're quite young. So um, the, I don't want to turn this too much into a social science, it's not science, but it's not my background. Um, but so the British prison population is about 86,000, 80,000 men, 6,000 women. Yeah. We are actually at the moment trying to move into a, a female prison uh, delivery course there. Um, however, you, you mentioned mental health issues. I think within the female prison population, probably the complicating factors are far greater than the male prison population. Um, the things that lead women to be to end up in prison are um, there's often an extremely long-winded um, episodes of trauma, neglect, and abuse. Um, so I think to engage with a, I suppose, a contact sport to try and get get people to engage with you when. Concepts of masculinity are not immediately um, the thing that ropes people into a course. Um, it's something that we need to really consider. So we we try to really make sure that our, our courses are um, trauma and psychologically informed, um, so that we're aware of people's mental health needs. Um, so it's just something that we're working on a bit slower because I think that the the female prison population is some, is a population that really needs a lot of care, understanding, um, and patience. Thank you. Your question? Yeah. Uh, do sports make you smarter or just less likely to make you like, have a tendency to make mistakes? And is that a long-term thing or just a, a short-term Exercise does enhance your cognition and actually it also prolongs your life. So um, as long as you don't suffer the negative side of the consequences that we've heard so much about today, so if you're doing exercise, which is, for instance, non-contact, it would be very good for you. Um, and I imagine within the context of sport, as long as you're not injured, um, it is also uh, has the same beneficial effects because it's basically exercise. A lot of dyslexics are very good at sport as well. We have a, I use the other side of the brain, so you said smarter, definition yeah. smarter. Thank you, the audience, because you've been brilliant and we've had fantastic discussion.